Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. Are osteopathic medical schools in trouble? Interesting question. Interesting thought experiments that I'm going to have today with our guest. The pre year session number 475. Hello, and welcome to The pre Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Premediers. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an amazing guest today, someone who I reached out to after I saw a YouTube video of his titled Addressing Osteopathic Medicine's Vulnerabilities, The View Through an External Lens. In that discussion, he was asked by the osteopathic medical schools, by the association, to have a discussion with them about what if, what, what does the future look like if some things happened? Where are osteopathic schools vulnerable? And potentially, where are you as an osteopathic student vulnerable? I listened to this video or watched this video and immediately wanted to have Dr. Brian Carmody on the podcast to really have a back and forth with him instead of just hearing him talk. I wanted to kind of poke the bear a little bit and see what his thought process was behind this and where you as a pre-med student potentially going into an osteopathic medical school, where you can make the best decision possible for your future career. We don't just talk about DO versus MD, we also talk about step one going past fail and a lot more. A lot of these topics I could have Dr. Carmody on over and over and over again to go in depth. So if you enjoy this discussion and you want more of it, let us know. Dr. Carmody is also known as the Sheriff of Sodium. You can find him at thesheriffofsodium.com or at JB Carmody on Twitter. That's JB as in Bob, Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-Y. Brian, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. When, uh, I, I, I love asking this question on the Pre-Med Years, even though you're not my typical uh, guest on the show, but when did you first realize you wanted to be a doctor? That's a good question that I haven't thought about for quite some time. Bringing back the old uh, <laughs> med school interview question. You know, I, I sometimes talk to, to people who sort of had a moment of epiphany or they had some grand, uh, you know, moment where they realized it. For me, it was more of sort of a gradual thing. I, um, 
I remember when I was, it, you know, the idea probably set into my head at first when I was in high school and I started to explore when I was in college and, you know, uh, shadow some physicians and, and start to imagine myself, you know, doing that. So uh, it was something that I guess it started early, but I wasn't sure about it up until, uh, you know, up until I, I applied to medical school and got accepted. And then I guess the rest is history. Yeah. And so you are a practicing pediatric nephrologist. Uh, Correct. You run a very active Twitter account. Uh, you call yourself the sheriff of sodium, which is hilarious. I, I don't know what it is with nephrologists and Twitter humor. Uh, it just it works really well. There, there are a lot of great uh, nephrologists on Twitter. What do you think is the cause behind that? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, the kidney is the, uh, the most, uh, beautiful and intriguing organ in the human body, um, <laughs> at every level. And so I think you attract a sort of, uh, an interesting and unique group of people, um, you know, into nephrology, whether it's adult or pediatric. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. For, uh, for someone listening to this, as you are in the stage of your life, you're at now as an attending, um, what is the biggest piece of advice that you love giving out to pre-med students? Oh man, you know, I don't see a lot of pre-med students. So, um, so that's actually one reason that I'm, I'm interested to talk to you because I, you know, I spend quite a bit of time with medical students and residents and, you know, people sort of at that journey. And that's sort of, um, you know, the things that I do on social media are all sort of geared toward that. So I don't really see a lot of pre-med students. I think if I were going to give a piece of advice, um, I think um, I think the piece of advice I would give is that um, you should start early practicing the skill of um, balancing your life with your work, because it is just not realistic to think that the external world is going to make you have more time for things that you want to prioritize. You know, as you move on, life life will stay busy, and you have to sort of come to terms with working hard on whatever your hands are on and then doing something else, you know, and, and being fully present and engaged in whatever that other thing is. And, and honestly, it's a skill that I think um, you need to recite and practice. And it, and it probably starts when you're a pre-med it's, it's easy to give into the mindset of, I've just got to get through this. I've just got to push myself to the limit and get through this thing. And then real life begins. But if you keep that attitude, real life sort of never begins, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. I, I think we as humans uh, fall into a trap of always reaching for that finish line and and only see success as getting the MD, getting the DO, uh, actually being an attending, getting that first big paycheck. And all of these fun, like just life experiences along the way, we miss out on. And then and then we're burnt out and we're miserable when instead we're like waking up every day and uh, celebrating that A on the midterm, A on the final, whatever it is, uh, are, are little successes that I think will continue to motivate us and keep us going. So I love that. So... I have you here because you put out a video uh, on YouTube uh, of a presentation that you gave to some osteopathic medical schools. The title of your blog post is The Vulnerabilities of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, with the video addressing osteopathic medicine's vulnerabilities, the view through an external lens. This made the rounds on Reddit where I found it. I watched it 
and reached out to you. So I would love to have a conversation with you about your thoughts. First and foremost, just just to get this out of the way, um, you are not a DO, correct? You're an MD? That's right. I'm not. Okay. And I, I don't work at a DO school. I don't really sort of have any... Um, any skin in that game, but, um, I, I am sort of, a an observer of medical education generally. And, um, uh, I mean, not to blow smoke, but I mean, I know, I'm, I know some stuff about it. And, um, uh, <laughs> and I think that's why I, I got, um, I got asked to, um, to give this talk to deans was to provide a different perspective versus the perspective that they, they may often, uh, you know, hear in their internal discussions. Yeah. So how did this talk come about? Were, were you at like at a conference and just, uh, just talking about some of your thoughts and somebody was like, Hey, you should put together a talk about this. Or, or was it just like, Hey, Brian, do you, do you have some things that you would be interested talking to osteopathic schools about? And then you put, put this together. Yeah, it was um, it was an executive from the um, from AACOM who yeah. who asked me to do it, and um, and I'll be honest, when I first got asked, I wondered if there was a particular thing that they wanted to hear about, and I tried to sort of explore that. So I was giving them the the, the content that they wanted, and um, and I honestly don't think they, that they had a particular agenda that they wanted me to talk about. They sort of gave me a blank slate, and so I gave my honest, you know, my honest opinions about that. So the the talk itself. Um, you know, was given in November of 2021 um, to the um, to their dean's retreat, and it occurred right before they they broke to do strategic planning. Okay, and what is your experience, uh, if any, working with osteopathic medical students themselves? What what is your view on on students coming out of osteopathic medical schools? Yeah, so we um, we do have um, you know at the hospital where I work, we have a. I would say a fair number of osteopathic students who choose to do electives, um, you know, during their fourth year um, at our hospital. We have um, a residency program um, that typically, I would say, maybe forty percent of our residents in recent years have have come from osteopathic medical schools. So, um, I, you know, my, my opinion is good. I think that um, uh, you know, osteopathic medical medical students and uh, and you know, residents with a DO degree, I think they they do very well for themselves. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Watching the video, your uh, particular insight seems to be mostly around the cost of osteopathic medical schools. And I think anyone who looks at tuition and fees and costs and, and like a total cost of burden, the, the, the burden of, of tuition and cost and everything, going to medical school like just knows uh, anecdotally that osteopathic medical schools are typically more expensive than their MD counterparts. And obviously you can go find some expensive MD medical schools where I'm on faculty here at University of Colorado School of Medicine. We're one of the more expensive uh, MD medical schools out there. What was your particular interest in looking at cost of attendance for, for osteopathic medical schools? Well, yeah. So again, you know, you've got to frame this around, um, you know, what they'd asked me to do, which is to help with strategic planning. And so when I, when I set out to sort of make this talk, I mean, what I tried to envision was a world in which, um, you know, osteopathic, the osteopathic degree doesn't have the same weight as it does now. And osteopathic medical schools aren't given the same respect that they are now. And if you imagine that world, what would it have taken you know, based upon clues that are here today, what would it have taken to get there? 
you know, if we look back at some point in the future and we say, man, you know, 2020, that was as good as it ever got to be a DO in the United States. You know, after that, things really started to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. You know, if that if that were to take place, um, you know, what what could we have seen coming? Mm-hmm. And um, and ultimately, you're right. I mean, if I were going to summarize the talk sort of quickly, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, recently there's been a large expansion in the number of, of DO medical schools. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you, especially if you believe in osteopathic medicine or believe that we need, um, you know, more physicians in the United States, well, sure, you know, we need expansion. But if you expand rapidly and the quality of the students that you take in um, declines at the same time that the, the market for resident physicians continues to tighten, and to be honest, and this is something we could discuss more if it's of interest, I mean, outcomes in the match, in the residency match for osteopathic students are not, not quite as good as they are for those with the MD degree for, you know, for various reasons. Yeah. And, um, and, and so if you do all that, if you're offering a product that doesn't give you quite the same um, uh, professional options and it costs more, um, that's probably not a good combination, you know, for um, – for establishing your 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 field as uh, in the way that you, you you want it to be viewed by others. Yeah, that and, and that makes complete sense. Uh, someone who wants to go uh, into acting and go to Juilliard uh, isn't going to pay three times as much money uh, to go to some random school in the Midwest where nobody has ever been an actor out of that school. Um, which is kind of the analogy that you're drawing is why would you pay more for something? when at the end of the day, you're potentially not getting what you wanted or expected. And it's it's a hard, I, I think it's a hard conversation to have for a couple reasons. Number one, and, and I've always made this argument, is it, it's the individual student that makes up the match, not the school, right? It's the student's performance, uh, both in their preclinical years at the school, uh, both at their rotations, uh, their home rotations, and then their uh, audition electives, their, their away rotations. And so it's, it's that student and the school can't really affect how someone performs in those away electives when they're, they're trying to show off to the program director, like, hey, you, you should really uh, rank me to match, uh, but I don't show up until an hour after everyone else and I leave an hour early. The school can't affect that. So it's always one of those weird conversations. But then also we have this confounding variable of a single accreditation now uh, in 2022, right? Uh, or is it 2020 that happened? Um, for the yeah, so graduate, correct. Graduate medical education is now under a single system, you know, yeah. run by the ACGME. Yep. Yeah, and so it's it's hard to make, uh, especially for these first couple years, it's hard to make um, good comparisons of match outcomes uh, with the single accreditation. Now that we have one set of numbers to look at, instead of the students who did apply through ARIS, the students who, who applied through um, the osteopathic match. Now we have everyone going into one match, one set of numbers to run some data on. Do you, do you think it'll be interesting to relook at this in a couple of years when things kind of settle out? Yeah, although I think it's going to take a while for things to settle out because, you know, a lot of things are changing. I yeah. mean, um, you know, single accreditation is certainly one, but I mean, um, you know, the number of students, um, you know, entering the match from MD and DO schools and the schools that they come from. I mean, mm-hmm. when you have newer schools, you have sort of less, 
you know, institutional experience in mm-hmm. getting your students placed in the match and so on. So there's, there's some other variables at play, but yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how things shake out over the next several years. Explain what you mean, the, the institutional experience getting people to match. Is that how to write the best kind of dean's letter or actual kind of backroom conversations that may be happening? Yeah, there's sort of multiple layers of that. So, um, you know, part of it is, I mean, you know, to be frank, part of it is, uh, you know, is name recognition where, you know, when you're looking at an applicant at a glance and, you know, there are certain fundamental differences between the ways that um, applications are reviewed for graduated medical education and for undergraduate medical, uh, you know, admissions like your listeners may be familiar with, Um, you know, so that matters. Um, but more fundamentally, I mean, when you're when you're a newer school, um, especially if you're a newer school that's really sort of staking out new territory, many of the new schools, MD and DO, um, that have expanded, have expanded, and they've set up in um, in more rural areas. Yeah. And there's real there's real benefits to that, but there's a real challenge too, which is getting your students the clinical experience that they need, and often that requires farming students out to various hospitals you know, in your third and fourth year. And um, if you have to do that, it helps to have some relationships established with hospitals that will, um, you know, give your students meaningful opportunities and, um, and sort of uh, give them the chance to advance when they apply for residency. So that matters. Yeah. There's all the academic advising that takes place and how you prepare your, your students to excel on metrics that they're going to be evaluated on you know do you do you have opportunities for research do you have um you know good um opportunities for them to uh, engage in board prep and so on and all those things you know if you're at a mature school that um has been doing all that stuff for a while you probably have relationships with um people for away rotations and you you probably have your system down pat if you're a newer school sometimes you've got to work through that stuff a little bit yeah, it's it's always been one of the things that I, I talk to students about is those relationships for the clinical rotations that osteopathic schools and, and you talked about this a, a little bit in your talk. Osteopathic schools, for the most part, don't have relationships and aren't uh, in proximity location wise to big academic medical centers where there's just an obvious like, hey, we're going to send our students here um, and and you'll take them and <laughs> you'll love them and take care of them and teach them. Osteopathic schools typically aren't associated with those big medical centers and either the school is doing the work to find placements or the student sometime ha- so- sometimes has to do the work Correct. to find those placements. And so potentially what you're saying is is what we talk about all the time is, is just a networking um, standpoint, you just aren't exposed to the people at the end of the day, potentially who are making those residency match, uh, and interview, uh, invitation type, um, decisions to, to, to just network and and build your network as a medical student. Yeah, correct. I agree with that. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm here in Colorado, uh, just north of us up in uh, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. Like there are medical schools that are opening there that historically there haven't been, I think for good reason. Like there's there's just not a lot of people up there, right? From a, a population density standpoint. Uh, Correct. There's, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of people in that state who probably want to go to medical school. Um, and then- 
to go to medical school to become a good physician, you need exposure to a wide variety of patients. And I think one of your concerns potentially, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but one of my concerns is that these students, unless they go get some fantastic away rotations or, or rotations in general um, outside of the area where they're training, are probably not going to get exposure to a, a wide swath of medicine. No, that's exactly one of my concerns. And I think that that's a vulnerability that needs to be addressed for osteopathic medicine in general. I mean, you can you can make a, a credible argument that there are, um, you know, offsetting benefits to having some rotations in rural areas. And I mean, I think that that's true. I mean, yep. um, the physicians practice in a different way. You're going to get to see some things managed in different ways. But it's also true that, you know, if you compare to a, to a sort of a typical or traditional MD school where every specialty is sort of housed in the same big giant university of such and such academic medical center, it's easier, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's easier for their students to um, get that experience in, in one place, you know, versus um, having to cultivate that relationship or, or, or pay for that privilege to have your students, um, you know, rotate, um, you know, in far flung hospitals where, you know, they're not all sort of part of the same system. And it's maybe a little bit more strained trying to, um, you know, make all that work. Yeah. Talk about it from the standpoint, uh, one of your big discussions in the video was about loan forgiveness. We, we're on a big kick here in this country. One of the, the Democratic or Democrats kind of uh, talking points for the election and, and, and post-election has been a lot of loan forgiveness. How does that affect, in, in your mind, a student's decision to go to osteopathic medical school or not? Well, um, you know, it could apply to, to many MD schools, too, because, I mean, like you said, I mean, on, whole, on average, um, you know, and I think this is true even when accounting for the fact that uh, there's, there's a greater proportion of osteopathic medical schools that are private versus public. But even accounting for that, osteopathic medical education is going to cost you a little bit more, you know, in, in general than, uh, you know, than an MD education would. Mm. Um, and so um, it's a big deal. I mean, you can come out of medical school with quite a bit of debt. It can, it can really impact your life. And um, if you have a plan to, um, you know, to, to do a, a loan repayment program, I mean, that, that really can be life changing if you're going to be somebody who's saddled with a lot of debt. I mean, if you do one of these income-based um, repayments or public service you know, repayments, which are currently an option, you know, and, and it means certainly, I mean, as you suggest, I mean, there's politically things that are being batted about, about a certain amount of loan forgiveness sort of for all comers or for people who meet certain requirements. And I mean, those things could happen, but I mean, alternatively, you could have a political system in the future where um, you know, there was a less, uh, you know, less willingness to entertain these kinds of loan forgiveness. So, I mean, I did suggest that I think that's that's a political thing that osteopathic uh, leaders should be um, working actively on, you know, to strengthen their schools. I mean, you have schools that um, expand into these rural areas. You have politicians who have supported that. And I think those politicians need to be continued to um, you know, to be lobbied and, um, you know, to, to encourage other forms of, of loan forgiveness for, you know, if, if you have graduates who come back to that area and sort of fulfill the school's mission, I think that you should push the politicians to reward the students who do that. Yeah. You know, now whether that'll happen, I mean, that's sort of, you know, 
it's hard to make a prediction about that. It's, it's politics, you know? Yeah. Um, talk about, uh, and I'm trying to find this specific slide where you talked about it, but you talked about um, budgets basically for medical schools and the large percentage of, of kind of revenue for osteopathic schools being tuition versus the allopathic medical schools the tuition was a lot smaller percentage of their overall revenue. And that was something that kind of uh, caught me off guard, I think, is something that that I didn't understand, uh, potentially the relationship between the hospital and the medical school, getting yeah. money from the hospital. Talk talk about that relationship. Yeah, so, um, uh, so essentially, you know, MD schools for the most part, and, and recently, you know, there's some exceptions to this, but in general, most MD granting schools are attached to a giant academic medical center. Um, you can think of the, you know, the, the, the famous hospital in your state or whatever that's attached to the, um, you know, the MD medical school, but um, it's a, it's a ginormous financial enterprise, you know, that, that brings in tons of revenue. Um, the medical school is often administratively housed alongside the revenue that comes in from, you know, patient care at the hospital. And what that means is that tuition revenue comprises a very small portion at the average MD school, a very small portion of their overall revenue, um, you know, such that if you cut it out altogether, I mean, yeah, the money would have to come from somewhere. I mean, it's not that, you know, things would be free, but there's, there's a giant pot of money that, um, that could, in theory, um, you know, be allocated to cover that if, if people wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, of course, every hospital is different, and sometimes there's silos um, erected between different piles of money. But um, in contrast, osteopathic medical schools are, are generally just schools. There's not a whole lot of revenue coming in from, um, you know, state and local governments. There's not a whole lot of revenue coming in from patient care unless there's an affiliated academic medical center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not a lot of research activity that draws in NIH funded grants. And what that means is that you have a, a, a complex financial enterprise that's really dependent on a single revenue stream, and that is tuition. Mm-hmm. And that means that, uh, and that's why I highlight it as a vulnerability, because anything in the future that changes students' willingness to pay higher and higher tuition or um, your ability to get loans for your students to, to allow you to keep doing higher and higher tuition, any of those things are going to render your, your institution very vulnerable to whatever stress you know, may occur in the future. I, I'm very confused, and I'm, I'm looking at the chart here. Um, it's about 16 minutes and 15 seconds into your talk. Um, why would the practice plan, meaning insurance and, and, and delivering patient care, why would that money go to the medical school as part of their revenues? Well, practice plan here is, um, is, is describing the money that's brought in from sort of faculty medical practice. Okay. So if you're at the university of such and such, and you're a, you know, an endocrinologist, um, you may be in the medical school and paid through the medical school, but the patients that you see generate revenue that's classified as the, as the practice plan. So yeah, if anybody's looking at that video, that big slice of the pie, that, that refers to, you know, faculty medical practice. Right, but but I'm trying to understand why you included that number as part of the school revenues. How does that affect the performance of the school to where it's not a vulnerability for MD schools, but it is for DO schools? That's what I'm trying to understand here. 
Well, imagine, um, imagine that you had a world where, and, and I go through this sort of in the talk. I mean, right now there is, um, there is little, um, underwriting that needs to occur for someone to get student loans. You know, if you go out and get a mortgage or if you go out and, uh, try to buy a car, um, you know, people will look at your credit score and they'll verify bank accounts or, you know, things of that nature to ensure that you were, um, you know, that, that you can, you can have a credible belief that the money that you borrow is going to be paid back. Well, for student loans. And I mean, I, I went to medical school on student loans, man, nobody asked me nothing about any of that, you know, <laughs> here's your you money, just sign your name. <laughs> right. Exactly. How much do you need? You know, the school says you can have this much, how much do you want? And, you know, I remember it was, I mean, it's a, it's sort of a awe-inspiring experience, but, um, so, but imagine that in the future, um, we lived in a world where at least some underwriting occurs because Mm. for instance, suppose that courts decide that if your students don't match, um, and they incur $400,000 of debt and they can't obtain a residency position and they can't practice and they can't ever repay that debt. Well, maybe those debts should all be discharged in bankruptcy. And, and, you know, there's potentially some, you know, some legal precedents that have been set that may allow that to occur. Well, if, you know, if that, if that happens and 5% of your students um, don't match and each of those, you know, that 5% is incurring $400,000 of debt, I mean, there's going to have to be some additional scrutiny that occurs on the school or on the student to say, yeah, you know, we can't justify giving you this much money because one in 20 people is going to default on this loan, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, if you have something like that, and tuition is a small portion of your sort of institutional lifeblood, it's not that big of a deal if you couldn't increase tuition, you know, Um, because you have so much revenue. I mean, you have 10, 20, 30, 50 times as much revenue coming in from, um, you know, from research grants, from, um, you know, from faculty medical practice, et cetera. It would be possible if you were the you know the leader of the school to offset and continue your medical education enterprise, um, you know, just with with money taken from somewhere else. On the other hand, if you're uh, at an osteopathic school where you do not have those rev- revenue streams, you're sort of sitting on a a stool with one leg. And if somebody kicks out that that tuition revenue leg, it really could put you in a desperate financial situation. Yeah. Got it. So the a lot more context around that makes a little bit more sense. It's it's uh that yellow in in this graph here again about sixty minutes fifteen seconds into your talk, uh, at least where I, I'm at. Um, that practice plan money is more of a in the future potentially if if uh, tuition money is harder and harder to come by where else may there be a buffer, right? How, how much money is in mommy and daddy's bank account that we can steal from? Right. Okay, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because just the practice of medicine itself, uh, uh, especially for hospitals, is um, if you look at um, just how much revenue is generated, how much profit is generated, depending on the hospital, not every hospital out there is very profitable. Um, and so I, I look at that big, big yellow uh, $576 million going, I don't know how much actually there is, is uh, net that, that can actually be lent to the school to help out. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see what, what potentially is out there. 
Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But there's other advantages to having that because, you know, you can imagine if you're in an academic center that has, um, you know, that, that serves that need for the state. Well, you know, you employ a ton of people mm. and those people vote. And you have politicians that are very sympathetic to, you know, whatever it is that you need, you know, you're not sort of left out on your own because you're, I mean, any giant academic medical center, I mean, they're, they're one of the biggest employers in the state typically. Yeah. And, and more of one of the more powerful lobbying bodies in that state probably as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, So that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's talk about it. I'm going to do a thought experiment. I don't think this was in your talk, but. I hear more and more about income sharing agreements. Are you familiar with these? Mm, you probably want to give me a little bit of background. Ed. Yeah. So, so income sharing agreements, I don't know when they started. I, I first heard about them more in the tech industry where instead of going to a traditional four-year college, come to our coding school. We're going to teach you how to code so that you can go get a job at Google. And we're not going to charge you you're going to give us a percentage of your salary up to a certain percent um, or a certain dollar amount in the future and and come get your education now. Don't worry about paying us and then go get your, your high paying job at Google. There are undergraduate institutions that are jumping on board with this. Purdue, I believe, is one of the biggest ones with some of their majors uh, and one of their engineering majors has it. Um, I, I listened to a great podcast with the dean of Purdue talking about it to where the, the student goes to college, gets their degree, technically comes out with no loans, but has a contract that says a percentage of their salary that they're going to make moving forward is going to go back to their undergraduate institution. So it gives people more flexibility in the choices of jobs that they want to go get or have to go get, maybe is a better term because they don't have this huge number looming over their head of, of student debt. I think medical school is just the perfect opportunity for this to where potentially we could get more and more people going into specialties that they want to go into, not that they think they need to go into to pay back their loans. So imagine going to medical school for free with a percentage of your future salary, whatever that may that, that salary may be, whether it's a hundred thousand dollars because you're an academic physician, or three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars because you're a private practice orthopod, whatever that may be. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that? Just as a, a fun thought experiment. Um, so my off the cuff thoughts, I I'm uh, I would be very hesitant to pursue that personally. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so me, <laughs> it may help to know a little bit of my background. I grew up in a, in a small town in Southwestern Virginia out in the Appalachian mountains. And so we're sort of used to, you know, the man trying to take advantage of us hillbillies <laughs> out there. So, so I'm always a little bit skeptical of things like this because the, of the sort of de- default position that such a deal would not be offered unless the person offering it felt like they were going to come out ahead. Mm. And, Sure, you can beat the house, but um, uh, and I would and I would want to sort of more thoughtfully analyze it before I would rule it out altogether. But um, um, your freedom in the jobs that you take and how you work those jobs is a is a real asset, and you never know. You never know if something like that may paint you into a corner, and um, and so it depends how certain you are about the about your career path and what the alternative would be. But 
Um, and, and I could imagine something like that, as, as you suggest, could work out for a certain number of people. But uh, my my initial bias would be probably against it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll send you some some info uh, offline about it. You can you can do a little more research. Um <laughs> Talk about the the match um, and, and what that's potentially going to look like in the future for MD students, for osteopathic students, with both single accreditation and step one going pass fail. We got lots of confounding variables here uh, for the future of of um, graduate medical education. Yeah, there's much I could talk about with that. Um, I guess. Um, you know, and your listeners, I don't know sort of um, how much they, they know about the match, because to be honest, I, I, I sort of knew vaguely about it when I went to medical school, but I, mm. I didn't know all the details. I sort of figured things would work out, and in my case, they did. But, um, you know, there are certain specialties. Uh, you know, it, it's just not the case that everyone who um, wants to be, say, a neurosurgeon or, um, you know, a dermatologist, not everyone is going to get that opportunity. Yep. You know, you um, you apply, and in those highly competitive fields, you know, maybe seventy-five or eighty percent of those who apply and rank those programs number one end up matching there. And even that is sort of a best-case scenario because many applicants are deterred from even applying in those specialties because they don't believe they'll be successful. So among the ones who have enough confidence to apply still in some of those specialties, such as, you know, plastic surgery or neurosurgery or orthopedic surgery or otolaryngology or uh, dermatology, you know, those fields, um, you know, still maybe, you know, three fourths of people successfully match. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's competitive. And, um, and in those highly competitive fields, um, you know, MD applicants are preferred. Um, and sometimes that uh, impact is, is significant. And, and, you know, it's hard to talk about these things without seeming like you're biased, but I mean, the real numbers are that, um, you know, like last year, I was, I just was looking at this for different reasons a day or two ago, there were six osteopathic senior medical students who matched in neurosurgery. There were two who matched in plastic surgery. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's not that it's impossible. And like you said, I mean, your mileage may vary, um, but you're going to have to walk a very narrow path. And exactly what that path will look like is a little bit more fraught than it used to be because, you know, five years ago, the answer was, well, you know, you need to um, score extremely highly on step one. And then, you know, do strong away rotations and so on. But the first step was to excel in step one. And now, as you suggested, with step one scores going past fail, that makes it a little bit more uncertain for how some applicants will choose to distinguish themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my guess, and, and talking to lots of program directors um, since this was rumored and, and now um, has, has become true is that the the weight of step one and in, in their selection criteria is just going to move to step two because that's still scored. So I would have loved to see <laughs> all of the steps uh, go, going past fail because it's it's very interesting, as you had mentioned, right? Students self-selecting out of certain specialties because they don't think they're going to be um, successful. Most of that decision is based on a step score, unfortunately, I think. Um, And we have the opposite as well, I think, where students are getting their step score back going, well, 
I've always thought about pediatrics because I love children and it's just what I've always dreamt about. But hey, like I have I have ortho step score material. So I'm going to go into ortho, not even pediatric ortho, just ortho ortho. Um, and I, I just a hypothesis that I think we have um, a more burnout than necessary in medicine. There are lots of reasons for burnout, but I think we have more than necessary because people are choosing specialties based on what they can do, not necessarily what they want to do. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think much that's true. So, uh, I mean, I agree with you that step two will, um, will become the most common screening metric. Um, and you know, we could, we could talk about why, why that is, but, um, to get to your second point, your second point, I, I think that it is a big contributor in, in medicine that uh, to burnout that um, uh, I guess I'd probably take it one step further that um, you, you have to sort of know in your life and in your career when enough is enough. Mm. Um, because whatever you do, you know, I mean, there will always be someone in town who's busier than you or makes more money. Or if you're in academics, who's writing more papers or has more research grants or more accolades or more, 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 whatever it is, there's always going to be someone who has more of it. And if you're always, um, measuring yourself relative to others, um, it's very easy to just sort of get on this never ending ladder and just keep reaching higher and higher for, for these rungs that honestly maybe don't even matter to you. And maybe they're even harmful, you know, maybe making an extra 20 or 30 or $50,000 a year doesn't actually impact your quality of life in a favorable way. Cause you don't have time to enjoy it, yeah. you know, or, or we could come up with other examples. So I think that that is, that kind of gets to the advice that I was giving, um, you know, back at the beginning when you put me on the spot for your pre-meds, but <laughs> I think it's true. You've got to, um, you want, you always want to be the best you can be, but being the best you can be doesn't, it can't necessarily mean giving every single ounce of everything that you have and every single thing that you're putting yourself into. Uh, that's, that's, and you gotta, I think you've got to come to terms with that at some point in your, in your medical career um, or you'll suffer for not coming to terms with it. Yeah. I, I think, I think it falls back on just a lot of self-awareness, self-reflection. What do you want out of your life uh, from a work-life balance, from a family standpoint? Do you want to be able to to play in the the local beer softball league uh, twice a week and, and be okay with that and not be on call? Uh, or, or do you want to be the world-renowned uh, left pinky surgeon um, and, and make a name for yourself for that? So it's, it's a lot of self-awareness that's needed as you're building your career. So one of the things that I'm concerned about that a lot of people are concerned about with more medical schools, more medical schools means more graduates. And for people who don't know, the number of residency spots is... is typically tied to funding that is done through Medicare. Uh, and, and that hasn't changed much. And there, there are private residency programs out there that come and go uh, that, that fluctuate the number of residency spots. What is your big concern uh, when it comes to more schools and more potential applicants to applying to residency programs? Yeah, I, I think you, you touch on sort of a, a big and important issue, which is that um, 
I mean, I think anyone would agree, you know, the purpose of medical education, whether it's residency, fellowship, undergraduate medical education, whatever it is, the purpose is to train a workforce to care for this, the people in our country. Um, however, we have these different steps of, the, of that process um, that all function independently. And there's not, um, there's not a sort of a single vision of someone saying, well, you know, we need a, a, a distribution of working physicians that looks like such and such. And therefore, we need to train this many people through medical school and we need to have residency programs that sort of approximate this ideal distribution. That doesn't occur. Mm-hmm. Instead, individual schools make the decision about whether they should expand or not. And they do so based on sort of hyper local variables. I mean, do they have the space? What would it cost? What would it bring in? You know, could they get it through the LCME or, or you know, or COCA, you know, the accreditation bodies? Um, and none of that has anything necessarily to do with whether we need that many more physicians. And residency positions are the same way. I mean, like you said, um, or alluded to, you know, since 1997, there has been a cap on the amount of, of money that Medicare, which is, is historically been the biggest funder of residency positions, will pay for residency positions as we're sort of fixed at those 1997 levels. That doesn't mean that hospitals can't expand their residency programs. They can and they do. It just means the hospital's got to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what goes into that decision similarly has little to do with whether you need more of people in that specialty nationwide or even in your area. It has to do with whether expanding the residency program would bring in um, you know, financial incentives that, that exceed what it would take to, to hire and cover the wages and benefits of any resident. And so the overall behavior of the system is sort of the sum total of all these individual hyper-local decisions and the direction where we end up, there's certainly no guarantee and there's no guidance trying to steer us in one way or another. It's, it's, it's sort of the sum of all those things. So I think that it is a real concern that, um, uh, you know, that we're going to go off kilter, you know, for one reason or another, either by, um, you know, training too many doctors such that, um, you know, it leads to poor working conditions or, or reimbursement or that we'll continue to have, um, you know, shortages of physicians and, um, you know, or a distribution of physicians that doesn't match what society needs. I mean, I think all those things are, are uh, you know, to one extent or another likely. Mm-hmm. Do you see there? there's two and, and I would love like we could deep dive into any of these topics we brought up today, but I'm just like rapid firing going through these with you. Um, do you see a potential in the future to where number one, we say no more international medical graduates in our match right now, if you run the numbers, there's probably enough room for everyone, uh, U.S. graduates. Um, if you take out international medical graduates, there's, there's plenty of room. Now that doesn't mean you'll get what you want to do, right? If I want to be an orthopedic surgeon, but my step one score, step two score, whatever you have, it doesn't match that reality. Then sure. I'll go match in family practice. Cause there's plenty of those spots. The majority of which are, are taken by international medical graduates at this point. Do you see a future where the, the government or someone steps in and says, Hey, like, you have to match every U.S. student before you will look at an international medical graduate. I don't think that's realistically going to occur. Um, and I say that because um, 
I think any any attempt to do that would be subject to to legal challenge, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm not sure that it would survive. And and um, there are you know the the Council on Graduate Medical Education, um, you know, which is the body that advises Congress about these matters. Um, I think historically some of the initiatives that we mentioned, like capping uh, Medicare funding for GME and so on, those things were really intended to sort of shift the demographics of the physician workforce in a way that would be legally permissible. So I don't think that that will ever occur. And, and I actually even say that many of the big lobbying groups would actually lobby against it, such as academic medical centers. And it's not so much because of, um, you know, uh, international medical graduates who want to, to practice clinically, but you've got to remember that these big giant academic medical centers also have enormous research enterprises yeah. and, um, and um, scientists who work on a, a work visa um, are in high demand to keep those labs running and all of the you know output that comes from them. Uh, you know, much as they are in um, you know in I don't know other industries like tech industry and so on. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that that will ever occur. Yeah, yeah, and and that's been uh, an issue over the last couple of years with. Uh, the, the restriction on visas that, that were granted. So that's interesting. And then one last potential uh, question before I let you go. Do you see a world where we have um, a, 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 ro- a rule, a law, where if you take federal financial aid to go to medical school, that you are required to do two years of primary care before you match into a, a, a subspecialty? That's interesting. That's something I haven't thought about before. Because <laughs> um, we we have there. There's a lot of screaming from the AMA, who's a big lobbying body, and so I always take everything they say with a grain of salt. That we have this huge uh, physician shortage. That is that is either we currently have it. There's estimated. Um, and, and uh, you look at the numbers and it's like, well, do we sure we have some here? We have some there. I think we have a physician shortage. I don't think it's as drastic as the AMA says it is. I think we have a distribution, as, as you had mentioned, uh, inequality of specialties where people don't want to go into primary care because it doesn't pay as much. Um, and so right. it'd be interesting to see like, hey, everyone who goes to medical school on federal loans, two years primary care post-internship, uh, which is what I did. Uh, I, I, I did the HPSP scholarship, so I did my internship year, and then I went active duty with the military. Um, and during those two years, you're going to do primary care. You're going to take care of the population that we need to take care of. We're going to prioritize preventive medicine. And during that time, you don't have to pay any money and, and your interest loans also aren't going to, to go up, right? No, no compounding interest there. Yeah, I think it will probably not occur, mainly just for reasons of politics. I mean, um, I I think the most straightforward, but also the most difficult solution to fixing, you know, the supply of primary care physicians is simply to pay them better. You know, yeah. I mean, if you paid primary care physicians, um, you will see a shift in people wanting to do primary primary care to the extent that you pay them more. Um, but of course, that's also, you know, we're just not in a healthcare environment where um, any payer wants to pay any physician anymore. And to pay primary care physicians more would require paying someone else less. And no one's eager to be that person, you know, to, to, to do that. So it makes it a, 
a challenging political issue that it's it's hard to imagine that um, coming to pass. But um, but I suppose it is possible. Yeah. I, I love thought experiments like that. So it's, it's fun. Well, Brian, I had a blast talking with you. Um, I would love to, to take a couple of these subjects at some point in the future and do deep dives into them because I think it's all valuable information that students, uh, either currently medical students or those um, primarily of this audience students thinking about going to medical school or wanting to go to medical school should be aware of so that they can think about it, talk about it. And, and like we talk about it in medicine all the time, have informed consent about what they're, uh, what they're doing for their, their future. So, um, I'll put you back on the spot. Uh, my audience, the the pre-med students, uh, one, um, parting word of wisdom for them. Oh, about, um, about being a pre-med just or about, life um, in general, physicianhood. Um, <laughs> uh, just, if you could go back, um, let, yeah. let's, let's frame it this way. If you could go back and tell yourself your, your pre-med self, uh, something, uh, what would that be? Um, I think I would say, um, and I think I've, you know, to be honest, I think I've done a pretty good job of this, but I still think it's good advice is, is to stay curious. Um, you know, when, when something piques your curiosity, don't, don't be afraid to pick at it a little bit. I mean, um, it's, it's tempting, you know, when you're, you know, when you're studying for your chemistry final or something and you, and you know that something's not going to be on there, it's beyond the scope of what's on the exam, but you see something and you wonder about how it is. It's tempting to say, man, that's not high yield. I'm going to focus on exactly what's going to be on that exam and nothing more. But sometimes, um, you know, your understanding is unlocked or you'll get, greater joy by following your curiosity. And the same thing when you're, you know, when you're on the wards, I mean, when a finding doesn't make sense, when, um, um, you know, you hear something and it just makes you wonder, give yourself a little bit of time every day, just to sort of indulge that curiosity. Um, and, and, and where that takes you often will be good places that, that leave you better off or more enriched or, um, um, you know, take you down roads that you didn't even know existed. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Brian Carmody, the Sheriff of Sodium, talking about some potential osteopathic vulnerabilities. It's a very interesting discussion, great video. Uh, Again, if you just go to YouTube and search for the Sheriff of Sodium, you can watch the video on his channel there. Again, if you want more of this with Dr. Carmody, let me let me know because it was a great discussion. I could have talked over and over and over more and longer and longer and longer with Dr. Carmody. So great discussion. Before we end, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. As we're recording this, as this episode is coming out, it is now February. We're in a little hiatus for MCAT tests because for some reason the AAMC doesn't test in February. But if you are taking the test soon, don't forget to check out Blueprint, MCAT, and Sketchy's partnership where you can get access to Blueprint's amazing full-length exams and Sketchy's great new MCAT platform to help you learn and memorize and retain all of that information to help you get the score you need on your MCAT. Go check it out at blueprintmcat.com. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The pre Years. This is MedEd Media.